0: Chapter twenty seven part two of a short history of Scotland by Andrew Lang. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter twenty seven William and Mary part two. Three weeks later the Cameronians, being unpaid, mutinied, and Ross Annandale and Polwarth, urging their demands for constitutional rights, threw the lowlands into a ferment. Crawford, whose manner of speech was sanctimonious, was evicting from their parishes ministers who remained true to episcopacy and would not pray for William and Mary. Polworth now went to London with an address to these sovereigns framed by the club, the Party of Liberty. But the other leaders of that party, Annandale, Ross, and Montgomery of Skelmorlie, all of them eager for place and office, entered into a conspiracy of intrigue with the Jacobites for James's restoration. In February 1690 the club was distracted, and to Melville, as commissioner in the Scottish Parliament, William gave orders that the acts for re-establishing presbytery and abolishing lay patronage of livings were to be passed. Montgomery was obliged to bid yet higher for the favor of the more extreme preachers and devotees, but he failed. In April the Lords of the Articles were abolished at last, and freedom of parliamentary debate was thus secured. The Westminster Confession was reinstated, and in May, after the last remnants of a Jacobite force in the North had been surprised and scattered, or captured, by Sir Thomas Livingston at Cromdale Ha, May 1st, the alliance of Jacobites and of the club broke down, and the leaders of the club saved themselves by playing the part of informers. The new act regarding the Kirk permitted the holding of synods and general assemblies, to be summoned by permission of William or of the Privy Council, with a royal commissioner present to restrain the preachers from meddling, as a body, with secular politics. The Kirk was to be organized by the sixty bishops— THE SURVIVORS OF THE MINISTERS EJECTED IN 1663. THE BENEFICES OF EJECTED EPISCOPALIAN Conformists WERE DECLARED TO BE VACANT. LAY PATRONAGE WAS ANNULLED. THE CONGREGATIONS HAD THE RIGHT TO APPROVE OR DISPROVE OF PRESENTEES. BUT THE KIRK WAS DEPRIVED OF HER OLD WEAPON, THE ATTACHMENT OF CIVIL PENALTIES, THAT IS PRACTICAL OUTLAWRY, TO HER SENTENCES OF EXCOMMUNICATION. JULY nineteenth, 1690. THE COVENANT WAS SILENTLY DROPPED. Thus ended, practically, the war between the Carrick and State, which had raged for nearly a hundred and twenty years. The cruel torturing of Neville Payne, an English Jacobite taken in Scotland, showed that the new Sovereigns and Privy Council retained the passions and methods of the old, but this was the last occasion of judicial torture for political offences in Scotland. Payne was silent, but was illegally imprisoned till his death. The proceedings of the restored General Assembly were awaited with anxiety by the government, The extremists of the remnant, the Cameronians, sent deputies to the Kirk. They were opposed to acknowledging sovereigns who were the head of the prelatics in England, and they, not being supported by the assembly, remained apart from the Kirk and true to the covenants. Much had passed which William disliked. The abolition of patronage, the persecution of Episcopalians, and Melville, in 1691, was removed by the king from the commissionership. The highlands were still unsettled. In June 1691, Brettelbane, at heart a Jacobite, attempted to appease the chiefs by promises of money in settlement of various feuds, especially that of the dispossessed Maclean's against the occupant of their lands, Argyll. Bretelbane was known by Hill, the commander of Fort William at Inverlochy, to be dealing between the clans and James, as well as between William and the clans. William, then campaigning in Flanders, was informed of this fact, thought it of no importance, and accepted a truce from July 1st to October 1st with Buchan, who commanded such feeble forces as stood for James in the north. At the same time, William threatened the clans, in the usual terms, with fire and sword, if the chiefs did not take the oaths to his government by January 1st, 1692. Money and titles under the rank of earldoms were to be offered to MacDonald of Sleet, Maclean of Dowart, Lochiel, Glengarry, and Clenranald, if they would come in. All declined the bait, if Brettelbane really fished with it. It is plain, contrary to Lord Macaulay's statement, that Sir John Dalrymple, William's trusted man for Scotland, at this time hoped for Brettelbane's success in pacifying the clans. But Dalrymple, by December 1691, wrote, I think the clan Donnell must be rooted out, and Lochiel." He could not mean that he hoped to massacre so large a part of the population. He probably meant, by punitive expeditions in the modern phrase, by fire and sword in the style current then, to break up the recalcitrants. Meanwhile it was Dalrymple's hope to settle ancient quarrels about the superiorities of Argyll over the Camerons, and the question of compensation for the lands reft by the Argyll family from the Maclean's. Before December 31st, in fear of fire and sword, the chiefs submitted, except the greatest, Glengarry, and the least in power, Macian or MacDonald, with his narrow realm of Glencoe, whence his men were used to plunder the cattle of their powerful neighbour, Brettelbane. Dalrymple now desired not peace but the sword. By January 9, 1692, Dalrymple, in London, heard that Glencoe had come in. He had accidentally failed to come in by January 1st, and Dalrymple was sorry. By January 11th, Dalrymple knew that Glencoe had not taken the oath before January 1st, and rejoiced in the chance to root out that damnable sect. In fact, in the end of December Glencoe had gone to Fort William to take the oaths before Colonel Hill, but found that he must do so before the Sheriff of the Shire at remote Inverary. Various accidents of weather delayed him. The Sheriff, also, was not at Inverary when Glencoe arrived, but administered the oaths on January 6th. The document was taken to Edinburgh, where Lord Stair, Dalrymple's father, and others caused it to be deleted. Glengarry was still unsworn, but Glengarry was too strong to be rooted out— William ordered his commanding officer, Livingston, to extirpate that sect of thieves, the Glencoe men, January 16th. On the same day Dalrymple set down orders to hem in the Macians, and to guard all the passes by land or water from their glen. Of the actual method of massacre employed, Dalrymple may have been ignorant, but orders from court to spare none and to take no prisoners were received by Livingston on January 23rd. On February 1st, Campbell of Glenlyon, with one hundred and twenty men, was hospitably received by McKeon, whose son Alexander had married Glenlyon's niece. On February 12th, Hill sent four hundred of his interlocky garrison to Glencoe to join hands with four hundred of Argyle's regiment, under Major Duncanson. These troops were to guard the southern passes out of Glencoe, while Hamilton was to sweep the passes from the north." At 5 a.m. on February 13th the soldier-guests of Macian began to slay and plunder. Men, women, and children were shot or bayoneted. One thousand head of cattle were driven away, but Hamilton arrived too late. Though the aged chief had been shot at once, his sons took to the hills, and the greater part of the population escaped with their lives, thanks to Hamilton's dilatoriness. "'All I regret is that any of the sect got away,' wrote Dalrymple on March 5th, "'and there is necessity to prosecute them to the utmost.' News had already reached London that they are murdered in their beds. The newspapers, however, were silenced, and the story was first given to Europe in April by the Paris Gazette. The crime was unprecedented. It had no precedent, admits of no apology. Many an expedition of fire and sword had occurred, but never had there been a midnight massacre under trust of hosts by guests. King William, on March 6th, went off to his glorious wars on the continent. Probably hoping to hear that the fugitive Macians were still being prosecuted, if indeed he thought of them at all, but by October they were received into his peace. William was more troubled by the general assembly, which refused to take oaths of allegiance to him and his wife, and actually appointed a date for an assembly without his consent. When he gave it, it was on condition that the members should take the oaths of allegiance. They refused It was the old deadlock, but William, at the last moment withdrew from the imposition of oaths of allegiance. Moved, it is said, by Mr. Carstairs, Cardinal Carstairs, who had been privy to the Rye House Plot. Under Queen Anne, however, the conscientious preachers were compelled to take the oaths like mere laymen. End of Chapter 27. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.